You're listening to the RE Social Podcast with your hosts, Andrew and Vince from Envy Invest. For more information, go to envyinvest.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It's not to be taken as financial advice. What's up, you guys? Welcome to another episode of Ori Social. Today, I have a very special guest, Hayden. Uh, he wrote the book, uh, Skip the Flip. You actually can see that in the background. I've read most of it. And uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a name in the storage industry. Uh, it's probably him and Paul Moore, probably the only two guys I know in uh, storage. Um, Hayden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. So if you wanted to, uh, if I give you 60 seconds to give like a little intro of yourself, uh, you know, do you want to yeah, take a shot at it? Start the clock, man. When <laughs> I was 19 in college, a guy told me to read a purple book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I got through that in about two days and thought to myself, holy cow, this is my path to being rich. Uh, I've always wanted to be rich, but uh, never considered real estate. It's not in my family or anything like that. So uh, I turned that into a Google search on, I was in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia. Uh, turned that into a Google search for real estate investing, Athens, Georgia, Bigger Pockets forums came up. I read in the forums, uh, this guy talking about how he made a bunch of money wholesaling, eight duplexes, went on to buy them back, did a cash out refi, made a bunch of money, reduced his taxes. And I thought, what language is this? I have to learn how to do this myself. And uh, essentially just cold call that guy, offered to take him out to lunch, said he was too busy. So I offered to meet him at one of his projects. Uh, long story short, I worked for that guy for free for over a year in college. She eventually became my partner and I started, went from, went from working for free for working for equity and deals. He was doing single family, multifamily at that time, stumbled across self-storage, uh, ended up buying 18 deals in 18 months, sold some of that portfolio, wrote a book on you know why everybody should be investing in commercial real estate, why people who want to build wealth in uh, real estate investing should not be flipping houses, you know, but should be playing the buy and hold game in commercial real estate. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that uh, you know I reached out to you. So Drew and I, we have Envy Investments and we, we are all about buy and hold. We are actually so buy and hold. It's like we start on the fifth gear and there's no cash flow at all. So that's why I wanted to talk to you to see how the commercial side of things work. So let's go back to your timeline. So you said you were 19, you read a start for that, you got the BP thing going on, bigger pockets, you found some mentors and you started working for them for free. What does that mean? Did he give you equity in the company or just trying to- He was just a dude doing deals. You know, I mean, I think that whenever I reached out to him, he had just like, just quit his corporate job as a biomedical Mm -hmm. engineer. Um, And he had been uh, side hustling real estate for a decade. And when I reached out to him, he literally just quit his job, went full-time in it. A dude who pretty much owned all of his properties by himself. He had a couple of equity partners. And when I mean work for free, like I just, you know, I'd skip classes. And when you're in college, you don't have a lot of obligations anyways. Right. So any free time I had, I'd go to his house, you know, and we'd sit there, we'd talk about real estate. I'd try to hunt down deals. You know, uh, he was doing his own property management himself. So I learned the property management side of the business by, you know, just offering to show, show units to tenants, 
sign leases, collect rent, manage evictions. We were doing house flips and wholesales at that time. So, you know, just being in the mix of that kind of side of the business as well. Uh, working for free is doing whatever I possibly can to add value to his real estate portfolio. And I just show up every single day, you know, with no expectation of getting paid. Just my payment is the learnings that I'm having, you know, pretty much with the goal in mind of I'm going to go do this myself at the end of college is what I wanted to, where I wanted to get myself to. And you did this for 18 months? No, I did it for about a year until I started earning equity and uh, acquisition fees and and things of that nature. So, and then I went on to, you know, become a partner, so to say, by bringing deals to the table, getting equity slices in that as a partner in deals. And then, you know, from about that time period on, we, I didn't, I didn't immediately, you know, after a year quit working for the guy. Uh, I just went from working for free to becoming a partner in the different deals that I'd bring to the table and work on. And um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, how it kind of transitioned. And we still own deals together, you know, to this day. Um, So it's not like, you know, completely left that just kind of transition from working free to working for equity. That is really interesting, man. That's uh, not a lot of people, you know, because, you know, we're all trained to work for money, right? And I don't know if you ever saw the show with Grant Cardone. Um, what is it? Something Undercover Billionaire. Yeah. Where uh, it was him and two other girls. They were all trying to, you know, do a million dollar business in I think 90 days or something like that. And it's what's most fascinating about Grant Cardone is he did exactly what you did. And, you know, he's a billionaire. And he said, I'm going to work for you for free. And then and I'll take 10% or 20% of more money you make than today, right? Yeah. But I'm going to work for free. And then I was like, what? And then he just gets an advance on his equity. It's just very interesting how people mm-hmm. think when you when you become like wealthy. So did you kind of know any of these things? Or you were just like, nah, dude, I'm just 19. I'm going to learn something. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that just sticks out in my head of why I took that action. And again, like at 19, you have no idea what you're doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that stuck out to me and the biggest thing I remember is just, I read, you know, uh, a Kiyosaki quote that says, when you're young work to learn, not to earn. And I just kind of took that to heart. And I said, I'm just going to focus the time I I'm here in college anyways, I'm not making a lot of money. I'm just going to focus on acquiring as many skills as possible between now and when I have to go out in the real world. And, uh, that's kind of, that's pretty much my sole inspiration for making that move. That's, that's very interesting, dude. Um, and then what would you say, like, is the top three things that you learned from this guy? You, you probably learned everything, huh? I mean, I, I didn't know anything about real estate. Yeah. So to peg a top three would be really hard. But I'd say the top three things that stick out to me, you know, today that most people don't know. Number one is, you know, I only go after off-market deals. I don't look at on-market properties. That's one of the biggest things that I learned um, is just how to how to find and close off market deals and how much valuable that is. The second thing that I learned is God, the biggest thing that I learned would probably be forced appreciation through value add on these different deals. I think that a lot of people, you know, look at a deal as is, and I really learned to have creativity of you know, what's the big upside in this deal? Why would I do this deal? Because, you know, we don't we don't want to earn eight or 10%. You know what I mean? Whenever we sold our portfolio, we earned an average of 96% year over year IRR. So, you know, just huge value add deals. How do you do that? Um, 
those are the top two things that stick out in my mind. I'll have to think on a, on a third, but, you know, just the general real estate industry uh, as a whole, you know, is, is, is all the ins and outs of that. Yeah, man. So you actually said something very interesting, which is since you're a commercial guy, you'll probably be able to explain it better. So most of our audience, they're residential. They got one to four units. They're trying to mm-hmm. get into the game. Forced appreciation, not really a thing. You know, you get, you're going to get trapped by the comps. Like, uh, for example, easy way to explain this to people would be, let's say my neighborhood all has like million dollar homes. And then I put like a, my kitchen made out of diamond. And then, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a $2 million homes. Nope. It's going to still only sell for a million dollars. Right. So mm-hmm. can you explain to people like what forced appreciation is? Yeah, for sure. So inside the residential world, you, you nail it. We're working off of comps, fair market values. What's a buyer willing to pay in this neighborhood? And really the only way to, you know, force appreciation is, you know, I mean, you could buy the neighbors for over asking price and drive up your comp price that way, or you could try and add more square footage. In the commercial world, we don't we don't work off of a fair market value. All of our values are based off of income that a property produces. And so if you take your income minus your expenses, and we're talking about operating expenses, we're not talking about debt service, mortgage payments, we're talking about you know property taxes, property management, um, insurance bills, maintenance and repairs, those kind of standard operating expenses. So income minus operating expenses gives you net operating income, NOI. And then that's pretty much like the biggest number in commercial real estate to pay attention to is NOI. And you could think about it like this. Let's say, you know, if you're going to do apartment complexes, they trade on what's called a cap rate, which is essentially a rate of return that investors want to earn. So let's say the investors in multifamily want to earn a 5% rate of return. That would be equivalent to a 20 multiple on NOI. So multiple is a little bit easier to think about because you just take, you know, let's say we have an apartment complex with an NOI of 100,000. We could do a 5% rate of return, which is equivalent to a 20 multiple. So we just take that $100,000 NOI, multiply it by 20, and our property value would be $2 million, right? So let's say we take that same apartment complex and you know I'm in Atlanta where over since the pandemic, we have 25% year over year rent growth. Okay. So let's say that we did that for two years in a row and now our net operating income is 150,000. We didn't do anything to the property but our net operating income went up. So now we take that 150,000, multiply it by our 20 multiple, and now we'd have a property value of $3 million. So the, the forced appreciation value add game in commercial is all about how do I get that NOI up? And there's just two ways to get your NOI up, right? Number one is increase income. Number two is reduce expenses. Increasing income is a lot easier than reducing expenses unless the property is just being ran very, very poorly. So whenever I go and I buy storage facilities, I look at things like, When's the last time they did a rent raise? You won't believe it, but most storage facility owners, mom and pops, haven't raised their rents in 10 years, right? They haven't raised their street rates, which is how much they charge new customers. And they also haven't raised the rates on their existing customers. It's it's ludicrous. I bought a property uh, and in, in month one, I raised the monthly income by $8,000 because they were so far under market a single tenant did not move out. So there's just a lot of different ways, but it's all about that NOI. How can I get that up? And then that's going to play into the equity of my property. And that's what I mean, you know, when I say forced appreciation. Yeah, man, that's very interesting. So I'm actually, we're trying to get into the uh, the commercial side of things too, but we primarily own 
rentals, uh, um, STRs, and uh, just long-term rentals in the yeah. duplex, triplex stuff. It's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I've been trying to get into the game. It's hard to get into that game. But let's go back to your story. So you you had training with this guy for a year. And then tell me about your first deal. Like, how did you, yeah, you learned all this stuff. It's good. You've seen it. But you actually hasn't haven't done anything. How did you make that first step? You had enough confidence? I mean, so my first deals, you know, we're in partnerships with this guy. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I I think it's a unique situation where, you know, most people are going out and just trying to get a deal done by themselves. I mean, I was, I don't want to say lucky. I'll just say fortunate enough to, to have seen the process and done the process again and again and again you know, for a year. And then finally, whenever I had enough cash to, to invest, you know, we did a storage facility. The first deal that I participated in was a storage facility about an hour South of Atlanta. Uh, it was 20,000 square feet. It was an off market deal. We bought it for $500,000, but uh, we negotiated a 3%, no, sorry, 6% down payment. We gave the owner $30,000 down and she carried a note we put another $40,000 into the deal. So total equity investment of $70,000. And that was a paint job, fixing some doors on the storage facility. Um, and that's the first deal that I got into. Again, you know, this lady had inherited the property through a divorce. She wasn't paying any attention to it. She didn't want to be a property owner. She was definitely motivated to sell it. Um, and we went on to sell that property for uh, 1.2. So it was turned 70000 into 700000 Dude, that's really interesting. Where uh, south of uh, Atlanta, Jonesboro? Uh, where the, it's called Warner Robins, where the uh, Air Force Base in Georgia oh, is. Okay, yep. that's cool. Is below College Park and stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. My sister. College Park lives... is still Atlanta. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, my my sister lives in Alpharetta, so I. Okay. I, yeah, and I I bought I made the mistake of buying a duplex in Stone Mountain, DeKalb County. Yeah. And I realized the taxes are four percent. So I'm like, yep. this is the worst deal I've done in my life. So <laughs> I'm going to sell it for like a hundred K profit after like a couple of years, but yeah. still, it's, 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 there's no cash flow at all. Zero cash flow. Yeah. I was going to say you hadn't done bad over it if you bought it before 2020. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so I actually, I'm very curious uh, to know, I'm very nerdy with math and stuff, you know, I'm Asian, so Hello. So, uh, but I don't know how to do the numbers. Yeah, it's not racist if you're Asian. Oh, okay. (laughs) Those are the rules. Yeah, those are the rules. So it's like, you know, Drew makes fun of uh, white guys all day. But, um, you know, so those are the cards we've been dealt. Um, But uh, my, my question is, how do you do the numbers for the storage units? And I'm very curious because they seem to be, well, you can evict the things pretty easily, right? Just toss them out. Um, and uh, I want to know some more about like, so how did, how did you get into storage and how do you run the numbers? So I got into storage because we were doing off market deals, you know, cold calling people, um, sending out letters, things of that nature, uh, in our, in the town I was in, in Athens. And, um, you know, we sent out a guy, I guess he had a rental house, you know, but he called and he said, Hey, you know, I got y'all's letter. Um, I'm not interested in selling this house that you guys, you know, talked about in this letter, but I do have the storage facility that my dad and I built like 20 years ago and neither of us even been there in like 10 years. So if you guys want to take a look at that, then we'd be interested in selling that, but I'm not selling you this house. And we, I had, 
I mean, I grew up on 40 acres in North Georgia with a, you know, with a barn on it. Like I was a country boy growing up. Like I never had self-storage just because we didn't need it. You know what I mean? If you had extra space, you threw it in the basement or in the, in the barn or whatever. Um, so I really had no idea what storage was. And, uh, you know, I just kind of looked to, to my mentor and I said, this guy has a storage facility. You know, do you want to buy? I don't know anything about storage either, you know, is what he told me. So we told the guy, you know, just give us a couple of days and we'll get back to you. And in that process, we just kind of started listening to podcasts, reading blogs, you know, trying to educate ourselves on storage units and just kind of realize that like, hey, it seems like it's a pretty easy business. This is a small property. I think it was like 130 grand total purchase price or something like 60, 65 units, 6,500 square feet, something small. Um, so anyways, we went on and, and bought that property um, or I helped him buy that property. And um, this was still kind of the process when I was working for free. And uh, anyways, you know, that's just kind of where we cut our teeth on it. Like it wasn't an intentional move. It kind of happened by chance. Uh, but, you know, things like that do happen by chance. So that's how I got into the first one and just kind of opened my eyes to the storage world. Um, and then how you run the numbers. I mean, it's kind of just what we talked about earlier, you know, like in commercial real estate, which pretty much all storage facilities are commercial real estate is you're just going to look at what's the income on the property. Where's the income relative, you know, to this property's potential. So if we were to put it in residential terms, like, are we below market rates? You know, is there vacancies? So, you know, that property had the potential to do like, I think, $7,000 a month or somewhere around in there. And it was doing, you know, like, again, he had barely even paid attention to it. So I think there was like three tenants in there that weren't paying, you know, so zero people in the property paying rent on the property, at least. And uh, you just kind of got to look at the potential of the property in that kind of situation. And then what's it going to cost to run it? So in storage, you have your basic things, property taxes, insurance, you have, uh, you know, software for running the property. If you're going to hire a property manager, you're going to have that expense. You know, those are pretty basic expenses. You'll have some repairs, uh, excuse me, repairs and maintenance on the property, just depending on how old it is, what its construction type. Most storage facilities are made out of metal. Some are made out of concrete. Very few of them are stick build. Um, but, you know, you got to just plan for maintenance accordingly on that. The doors break every 15 or 20 years, something like that. Um, and then the biggest kind of variable, you know, in the storage industry right now is labor, you know, because, uh, some technology has come out pretty recently, when I say recently, like the past two years, that's really made it to where you can almost automate a storage facility. You know, uh, there's some technology out there on the lock side, the customer service side, you know, so it just depends personally on how you as an operator want to run your business. Do you want to stick, a Fifty to sixty thousand dollar a year person at the front office, and let them only do two hours of work in an eight hour workday. But you want to provide the best customer service possible, or do you want to be really lean, use automation, and only pay you know a handyman, field tech type of guy to go out there once or twice a week, you know, and cut your payroll down to two thousand dollars a month. You know, so it really depends on the size of the property, what you as a business owner want to do, but you know, that's the biggest variable right now in, in the storage industry is the labor component. You just look at income minus expenses, try to get a cap rate. And, uh, you know, that multiple that we talked about earlier and try to buy it, you know, obviously below what it's, what it's going to be worth one day. 
It seems so. Drew, you have something? Yeah, when you buy a storage facility, does that automatically come with the land? Is that what I'm hearing? Or no? Yeah. Unless it's can... unless it's bifurcated, but in which case, you know, no. So and is that pretty much the standard when you're when purchasing storage facilities? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, You'll see some on land leases. Like I've seen a couple close to airports that are on airport land leases, in which case you're only buying you know, you're assuming the the land lease, you know, and uh, but the standard is definitely to purchase the land along with the structures. Then that probably takes off some of the pressure as long as you're in a decently growing community. You know, you've got that appreciation on the end, just worst case scenario. I mean, do you so, know why storage units were created? I have no idea. Storage units were created you know, back in the 80s as a method to land bank for people. So the the only goal of storage units was generating enough income to cover the property taxes while land appreciated. So storage units were never supposed to be this multi-billion dollar industry that one in 10 Americans have a storage unit. The main and original purpose was we just want to pay our taxes and, and land bank this. We want to be neutral cash flow on this land while it appreciates. Is this uh, under a thirty-nine year depreciation schedule? Yes, mm-hmm. but okay. you can you can cost sag and cost accelerate that. Yeah, stuff's going away though, right? This year, mm, not that I've heard, but I'm not an accountant, so talk to yours. Yeah, it's, it's they're, they're reducing the bonus depreciation and all that stuff. What's um, the bonus depreciation is not uh, cost segregation studies. So then, oh, so I guess you won't be able to take all of it in the first year then, right? You can probably take the 39 to like a 5, 15, or 10-year schedule. Depending on cool. the components. Yeah. 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 That's cool. What's that, Drew? I just had a quick question. I'm, I'm kind of more of the business background. Um, what's like an average profit margin? What's like a decent profit margin for a storage uh, like business? I mean, a smaller facility, you know, and I like to measure facilities by square feet because number of units is really deceiving because you can have a five by five unit, which is 25 square feet, and you can have a 12 by 30 unit, which is 360 square feet, right? So not all units are created. Mm. So per square foot. Yeah. So I would consider a small storage facility to be 20,000 square feet and under, a mid-sized storage facility to be between twenty and forty thousand, and then you know a a a good to large facility would be forty thousand square feet plus. So in the larger storage facilities, forty thousand square feet plus, you're probably going to be looking at an operating expense ratio of like thirty five percent, which means you should profit sixty five percent. But that's before debt service. So of course, all of this depends on right. how you lever and what you can borrow at. Um, on a smaller storage facility, medium-sized storage facility, you know, you're probably about 40%. And a s- smaller storage facility, you're probably at about 50% operating expense ratio. That makes sense. It's like yeah. kind of on a scale. Because you know, really, think about it, right? Like whether you have tw- whether you have 30,000 square feet or 40,000 square feet, your costs are pretty much the same. Your software yeah. costs the same. Your utilities really aren't changing. Your property taxes are higher. Your insurance is higher uh, as the replacement cost goes up. And it, depending on how you run your labor, if you're going to have a full-time person, it doesn't matter if you have 30,000 or 40,000 square feet, you're going to pay that person the same because you're paying by the hour. Yeah, right? What, what's, what's a good software for this? Like, I'm sure it's not Appfolio or Buildium. 
Uh, there's definitely specialized. There's a company that pretty much owns the, the software side of the storage industry called Storable. Then they have two different uh, property management solutions called SiteLink and StoreEdge. I use both of them uh, on different properties and they're, they all do the same thing pretty much. Nice, man. I wouldn't have thought that your expense ratios will be like in the 30s and 40s. I would have thought, you know, because that's where our, our multifamily portfolio, it's about 45, you know, to 48%. But that's uh, that's pretty uh, high number. So that's that's norm usually, 35%. Okay. Yeah. Including property taxes. And you got, you know, big property taxes, insurance bills, labor. Yeah. Because of the land is bigger. Yeah. Okay. Well, governments just realize, you know, governments have caught on that these are these are valuable properties, and they're taxing them accordingly. What what kind of a split are you getting in terms of uh, um, building versus land? You, you're not getting eighty twenty, right? Like eighty percent of the value is uh, depreciatable because it's building. I mean, it's all about how you designate your purchase, you know, on the entry between how much the land's worth and how much the the structures are worth. So. You know, that's just up to you and your accounting team. I've seen, you know, 90, 10, 80, oh, really? 20. So, yeah, it's just that's all cool. about the specific deal itself. You know what I mean? Like, for yeah. instance, like if you go out and you buy a, uh, a boat and RV storage facility, which is a little bit of a different niche than a than mm-hmm. a regular storage facility. I mean, those are just roofs and sometimes they're nothing. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you're just parking on gravel out there uh, on those storage facilities. So, you know, there it's a hundred zero because you've got no structures, you know, it's a hundred percent land. So you have no depreciation on those. If you have canopies, it's a lot lower because those are really cheap structures to build. I mean, you just got a roof pole barns essentially. Wow. That's interesting. And then, uh, okay. So the, you got the depreciation and then also oh, what about like uh, climate controlled stuff? Is that a, is it like per property or is it per unit? How do you do that? Uh, specify a little bit more, which mean. So do you have air conditioning and heating in every unit to maintain a certain temperature? Uh, no. So it's, it's property specific. You know, some okay. properties will have no air conditioning and really you don't want to call it air conditioning. You want to call it climate control. There's some mm-hmm. different connotations there, but yeah. Um, and the climate controlled properties, you know, it's just about whether you're going to set your units up that way or not. Um, you know, you have to think about HVAC and, and all the electrical systems. Like some of these storage buildings have no electricity in them, you know, no lights, no power, no anything, just, it's a, it's a metal box out there. How do you go there in the night to put your things in? You know, you'll have like, uh, like what are the security lights or whatever on power poles? You know what okay. I mean? Very interesting. So, yeah. You, you think this is true? Do you have something to say? No, we're not really that can contribute. It's just interesting. Every storage facility I've ever, you know, foolishly helped a friend move out of, <laughs> um, it was always super hot. I remember that. Like no heating, no cool, no climate control, if you will, at all yeah. in the hallway to the facility itself. So it's, it's kind of well, we live in SoCal where temperatures are fairly moderate, with the exception of this past two weeks, which has been straight up Arizona. So it's interesting. So um so Hayden, so I have a, let's do something fun, right? Let's say there's some guys listening, some girls listening. They're like, dude, I got a duplex. I have a primary home. This market is crazy. Multifamily cap rates in Orange County, it's a joke. It's 3%, probably 2% now, right? And that's not including the 6% debt, right? So 
doesn't even make sense there. You're negative if you borrow now. Um, so I want to look into storage units and I found something in, you know, in coming Georgia, like, oh, what do I do? Like, what, what do I have to do to run some numbers and make some offers? Like what, what is the first step? I mean, assuming this is a, this is an on-market deal or an off-market deal. Let's just say it's on market. I know you're the off market king, but yeah. we can talk about that after this. Yeah, so I mean, just, a, just to keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, on an on market deal, you know, the broker should be providing you with an offering memorandum, a rent yeah. roll. Mm -hmm. One of the main things you'll want to look at, you know, is a, is what is called a management summary report from software. And if they're sophisticated, really not even if they're sophisticated. Um, if they're not so mom and pop that they don't even know how to put their business on Google, then the chances are they'll probably have a management summary report, which a management summary report is just like, just that. I mean, it's a summary of the management of the property. It's how many units are occupied, what's your income, um, what, how much delinquency do you have out of your different units? Just an overall quick glance of all aspects of the, the business at hand. Um, you know, just try to find out T12, what, what's the income on the property? T12 trailing 12 months, how much is the property collected? If you just want to be, you know, back of, back of napkin, take the income, multiply it by 0.65. That's a 35% expense ratio. That'll give you, you know, a rough NOI of the property. And then you can take that and divide it by say 8%. And that's probably a pretty good purchase price for you. Like, That'd just be an 8% cap rate on a 35% expense ratio. You know, that'll be in the ballpark. If you can acquire it at that or less, you probably got a good, you know, a, a decent deal on your hands. But, you know, there's so many different variables because so many properties out there are not being ran even close to their full potential. You know, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of this, there's 50,000 storage facilities in America. There's more storage facilities than there are McDonald's. Starbucks and Subways combined. Let me say that again. There are more storage facilities than McDonald's, Starbucks, and Subways combined. Okay. There's a Is lot there a need for it. Yeah, it's growing like crazy. There's a huge need for it. There's more storage facilities than ever, and they're building more than ever. Um, one in 10 Americans has a storage unit. One in 10 Americans. Okay. So, anyways. With that being said, with so many different properties, and it's really a, a, a disintegrated industry where everybody kind of does their thing their own way, is that there's just a lot of people out there are not running their storage facility very well with a lot of upside. So, kind of what I'm telling you is that rule of what I was telling you about, you know, that's as the property sits as is, but there's always like, there's always this upside potential that we have to be going in and looking at to understand if, hey, you know, can I increase the income by 30% reasonably, you know, with, with little risk going on, you know, you got to dig into the market, the competition that's around you, you know, cause like, I'll give you an example. Montgomery, Alabama is an extremely saturated market. When we think about competitors and how much storage is out there, we like to look at radiuses, which for those of you who are just listening and not watching and don't remember, you know, math or science, whatever it is, talks about radius. That's pretty much the, the the half the distance of a circle, right? So if you're to 
pick a point on the map and go one mile out, you know, and draw a circle around that, that would be the one mile radius. You look at the one mile radius, the three mile radius and the five mile radius of a property. And you look at how many competitors are in there, how many people live there, what is the income of these people? And really at the end of the day, you try to figure out how many square feet of self-storage is there for every person. Now, there's debates in the industry, so I don't want to be tagged as saying this, but kind of the traditional you know, thing that people would generally accept is nine square feet per capita, okay? So if you've got you know, uh, a market where there's more than nine square feet per capita, it means you're oversaturated. It means there's too much self-storage in that, that industry or sorry, in that market. And, you know, there's going to be, you're going to have a hard time pushing rents up, raising income, blah, blah, blah. If you're how under do you get nine that data, the nine square feet per capita, how do you get that data? Yeah. Uh, there's a, a software out there called uh, radius plus. I think it's radiusplus.com. It'll, it'll map all that out for you based off of census data and tax records. Okay. Um, so anyways, this is, a, mm-hmm. this is a long way of saying to people, you know, there's, there's multiple factors that go in it, but self-storage at its core is, is a really easy business, you know, after you educate yourself a little bit. And I'm, I'm in the process of um, about halfway done with, with the, the self-storage mini book that, you know, would kind of lay all this out to people. Mm-hmm. So nice. Yeah. Do you do you ever talk to Paul Moore and stuff? Do you know him too? No, I don't know Paul. Mm-mm. Okay, I know AJ he's, though. AJ's the other. Uh, yeah, AJ Osborne. Yeah, he's a great name in the in the industry. So I know AJ personally. He's a good dude. So, so that's um so that's a um industry to get into, huh? It seems like it's no, you got to stay out. It's no good. You wouldn't like it. You won't make mm-hmm. any money. Stick with what you're doing. No, it's, I'm just uh, it's a big industry, man. You, you guys would love it. Is the um, is it seems like it might be protected in a recessionary time because people still have to keep their stuff somewhere, right? So, what do you think? Well, the traditional logic, I mean, in two thousand and eight, uh, self storage outperformed every asset class. I think, other than senior housing, and I think it was neck and neck with senior housing. Um, self storage, I think, over the last since the year 2000 has outperformed every other asset class in the real estate sector. Uh, But the traditional logic is, you know, in a recessionary time, um, people downgrade from their six bedroom, five bath house to a three bedroom house. And they have collected a bunch of couches and TVs and stuff. And, you know, they went from the 4,000 square foot house to the 2,000 square foot house. And now all their stuff doesn't fit. So, you know, and they also downsize their mortgage. They go from a $5,000 a month payment to a $2,000 a month payment on their housing or whatever it is. And so it's not a big deal for them to go in and pick up a $150 or $200 a month uh, self-storage bill to store, you know, their thirty dollars to $40,000 worth of stuff while they, you know, are living in this smaller house temporarily through the recession. So that's the traditional logic that is people downsize their housing and their payments associated with their housing, that they, they'll, they'll take on a self-storage bill to store all of their stuff that they've accumulated. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be a, uh, a counter-cyclical um, asset class that, you know, as the economy does worse, storage does better. But I mean, I've got to tell you, it's, it's, it's done really well in good times too, because when times are good, people buy a lot of stuff and they need more space. 
you know, until they buy that bigger house. And then, you know, on the, on the downside, whenever things go bad, they, they need somewhere to put all that stuff that they purchased. Anecdotally, what is your opinion of when it does better? Is it in the downturn? I didn't, I mean, I didn't live through 2008, so I can't really say, you know, from personal experience, at least I've only lived through good times. So we'll see. <laughs> Even COVID. <laughs> That's COVID the best blew up. I mean, COVID uh, rents are, rents are higher. Rents and values are, are higher uh, through COVID than ever. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that everybody sat at home through COVID and realized, you know, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here. So I should clean out the garage and they went and rented storage units and uh and values went you know i mean values went way up because cap rates are loosely tied to interest rates as interest rates went down you know cap rates went down which means the multiple and the valuation of the property goes up and uh and the other thing that happened is because everybody thought at the beginning of covid that there was going to be a huge recession uh, a lot of private equity groups a lot of wall street firms created self storage funds as a way to say, you know, where can we move our, our, our capital at, at this time to withstand this COVID recession? It never happened, but the demand to acquire self-storage facilities went through the roof. Tons of family offices and private equity firms were launching self-storage funds that had never been in self-storage. And so on top of the, you know, the interest rate uh, reductions and cap rate suppressions, uh, just general supply and demand to to own these facilities went up and drove the the price up even further. So you know you referenced earlier how low cap rates are on multifamily and you know in, in Southern California and it's I mean self storage is definitely in primary markets done the exact same thing. So um, I I did uh, write down some of the stuff you're talking about when you're doing the numbers right so. Uh, you talked about, you know, evaluating properties at, you know, 35 expense ratios, you know, divided by the cap rate of 8% and, you know, make sure the um, NOI is there. And But why would you pay for things that you're going to do, right? Wouldn't you rather use their garbage NOI they have an offer lower and then pick it up and then do all that stuff? Yeah, but if it's an on-market deal, then somebody like me is going to know that, hey, their NOI currently is irrelevant because they have no idea what they're doing, right? So if you're going to go after on-market deals, you almost always have to be using a pro forma NOI, which essentially means we're not, the NOI today is irrelevant. Here's what this property will produce on the revenue side for somebody who knows what they're doing. And here's the standard set of expenses associated with this. So, you know, the NOI is in place on these because, you know, you see everything from the owners doing all the work themselves, having a zero labor in place to the very flip side, which is the owner has his brother do everything. He pays his brother 120 grand a year in labor expenses, you know, and both of those are so far on the different side of the spectrum that can really just skew what the what the NOI is today and, and how the NOI is going to change once you purchase that facility. So what happens when you go to the a bank and then they're like, your DSCR is garbage. So we give you a 20% LTV loan. So then, so then you're screwed again. So you got to just put down that bunch of money down. I mean, I think that you should never buy a facility that wouldn't underwrite on the DSCR, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, banks right now are looking for 1.2, 1.25 DSCR yeah. on these type of properties. And you can definitely pitch to the bank 
Um, you know, you can pitch to the bank. Here's the pro forma DSCR, you know, in place isn't what it is. And so I created a whole software uh, company around this called My Property Stats, which helps you analyze. And it's not just for storage. I mean, it's for single family rentals, for multifamily property, for any kind of commercial property. It does great on self-storage. It also does short-term rental properties and all that to really, you enter in a couple numbers, takes five minutes to enter a deal in, and then it'll spit out to you, you know, your cash flow your values, your DSCRs, your IRR, your cash on cash. And it'll kind of put everything in one central place. And we built in a goal seek on there. So you can just say, hey, you know, my goal is to earn a 10% cash on cash. And it'll tell you the exact price to pay for any property so that you can ensure you're going to have a good DSCR, you're going to earn a good return and just makes everything professional kind of in one central place. So... Yeah, I remember seeing that actually on your website. Do you still do that one-year trial for your uh, people or that's, that's done? Uh, we moved it down to a 14-day trial. So anybody wants okay. to use it, yeah, cool. can go to mypropertystats.com and cool. uh, on checkout, use uh, free 14 days, all okay. caps, more yeah. and more free 14 days. 14 being one four, not spelled out, but um, it wasn't yeah, that bad. It's, it's only like hundred bucks or something, right? Per year. It's $99 a year for unlimited yeah. deals. So it's yeah. a pretty kick-ass deal. If I say so myself. That's pretty cool, man. And then, okay. So you are doing the, the, the numbers. So the storage units, is that, is that, I wanted to know this because I'm just trying to get into multifamily. I've been underwriting deals. Is that normal or is that like because of the COVID that we're using the numbers from pro forma to underwrite the deals? Well, I mean, I think if we, if we rewind the clock, you know, to 2005, whenever uh, no investors nor banks, you know, recognize self-storage as a real asset, then you were, you know, you were doing things like buying properties. This is, you know, this is from hearsay. I wasn't buying properties in 2005. I was, Mm -hmm. I was nine years old in 2005. So um, in 2005, you know, nobody recognized self-storage as an asset class. And so people were buying on 15 caps on in-place NOI, you know, but as demand for acquiring these properties has accelerated, you know, I mean, it's like anything. How do you rationalize an above asking price on a house in California or anywhere in the nation for that example, right? Well, somebody else is going to pay me more money down the road or whatever, or, or I, it's, it's better for me to pay this because my payment is going to be, you know, less than it is now. Or like, there's a lot of different ways to rationalize it. So I think that as demand has grown and people want to be investing capital into the, the marketplace and want to acquire deals, they find more and more ways to rationalize lower and lower cap rates, you know? Yeah. I was going to ask you like a philosophical question. Uh, Not really philosophical. Let's see. Um, It's so, you know, as we move, like how the feds uh, print money and the overall world economy, international monetary fund and all these things, they're driving the, the world economies are getting more and more dependent on Federal Reserve and the you know the currencies of different countries and such right and for that we are unable to really raise the rates as much anymore. Like if you see the trend, it keeps going down and down. Like you know, like the your European Union doesn't even raise the rates like one percent. Like they're like screwed, right? So because of this, we are seeing 
as you see more and more, like you were mentioning, uh, money driving towards like asset classes, different asset classes, and the yields shrinking over the years. Do you think it it becomes normal for people to expect lower and lower returns as we go because you're actually getting negative returns in terms of like just keeping the money or you know stock market or something like that? You think this becomes like a more normal thing? Like, oh, you know what? Three cap is actually a good deal in Orange County. You know, that's the thing now. Um, I don't think that we have seven hours here to go into this discussion. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. certainly what we've seen. You know, I also can't speak because, you know, again, I, I, I haven't seen a whole cycle. And I've tried to to learn as much as I can to kind of, you know, understand what the other side of a of a of a bull market looks like and prepare myself personally for that. But um, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you look at how much money has been printed, it, you know, all the math says that, you know, even the US, which is, you know, the uh, you know, for lack of a better terms, it's the it, it's the best house in the hood. You know what I mean? Like it's you it may is the be strongest in, economy by far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're the strongest economy in the world and we we still have we're we're really bad. You know what I mean? Like we can't service our debts if interest rates go up as a whole. Uh, we run huge deficits, you know, um, it's just, it's an interesting concept. I don't really know what to say about it, uh, or what I think will happen. I think that Ray Dalio's, uh, you know, debt cycles, um, is a pretty, pretty interesting thing to, to kind of pay attention to here. Uh, but I think there's gotta be some pain. And I think that, you know, where we're currently at can't be, long-term sustainable. That's just my thought that I don't see how it is. I mean, I, I guess I would love for it to be sustainable long-term, but I don't see how it is. But also, you know, fundamentally, we've never had this much cash in the system. There's just a lot of strange fundamentals going on. And, you know, I just try to focus deal by deal, you know, sub-market by sub-market and make sure the deals that I'm getting myself into, I think are, you know, good long-term. And other than that, I just try to borrow as much money as possible for as cheap as possible for as long as possible. So. Nice, man. That's a, that's a good answer. Yeah. I, I, I read a lot about Ray Dalio and stuff. I've read his other two books, Changing World Order and uh, Principles. I, I, I did have the big cycles. But I like audiobooks, so I'm waiting for the audiobooks to come up. Yeah. Uh, cool, man. Uh, Drew, you got anything else for Mr. Hayden? Yeah, I, and I, I kind of chimed in a little bit late. I had a meetup with the uh, uh, Home Depot team dropping off some stuff at this property we're working on. But um, uh, in terms of the deal structure, you said you're raising capital. And I'm sure you're doing partnership deals kind of like we are. How do you structure that? Did you guys already talk about that? No. It's deal by deal, but generally, you know, I like to go to my investors and I like to say, hey, listen, you know, I've got this really killer deal here. Uh, my goal is to get you, you're going to give me $100,000 or whatever that amount of money is. My goal is to give you all of that money back within three to five years. I'm going to give you a huge pile of tax benefits. And then at the end of three to five years, you're going to have all your money back and you're still going to own 50% of the deal for the rest of your life. And at that point, I hope that you give me the money again and we'll do it again and again. So now I think what, when you're raising- you sell that, that property though, then it's all starting yeah, over? after you get your money back, then we're 50-50. You know what I mean? So- I got you. Yeah. So kind of so the I same like, structure I, that we do. That's interesting. Yeah, I just prefer to keep it as simple as possible. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who you know, want to run complex waterfalls and everything. What I've found 
whenever I raise capital is the simpler the structure, the better and the easier it is for an investor to say yes to. Because yeah. most people are, I love most people. Most people are not as smart as you think they are. And most people are not willing to consider the deal, to consider you as a sponsor, to consider the deal structure. So we yeah. want to remove as many as possible ways for an investor to say no. And we just want to try to keep as much as simple. My name's Hayden. I've done 17 deals. I've doubled my money on all of these. Great. Me as a sponsor, I'm good. Let's talk about the deal. It's in a killer market. We're going to triple the income. Great. The deal's out of the way. The structure of the investment, wow. So simple. Makes sense. Yep. You don't make money until I get my money back. I'm great with that. You know, that. so it's just all about how you how you present it and you know kind of run through that side of it. I'm a big fan of keeping it simple. I think it's easy for us to get caught up in the weeds and overcomplicate concepts. And uh, and yeah, that's that's super on point. Just keeping it simple. Very similar structure to what we do. Um, in Actually, that, exactly so, the same. <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's, that's interesting. It must be the best then. <laughs> it, no, it's honestly it's so good that like when people kind of get a little bit like, well, I don't know, I'm like, you're insane. I would do a deal with me all day. <laughs> like I really would. Yeah. You know, and uh, with our it's track important record. for your, it's important, you know, for anybody raising capital, it's important for you to understand one main thing is that you need to be able to wholeheartedly say to your investors, we're in the same boat here. I don't make money until you make money. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm not getting paid. Like I'm not here to yeah. take, to, to take asset management fees or, you know, yep. ridiculous uh, acquisition fees or anything like that. Like I'm going to make like the juice in this deal for me is when the juice is in the deal for you. Right. Like yeah, I'm not, cool. I'm not, I'm not cashing in until you're cashing in. So I, and I think like it's something that we don't emphasize enough, which is yeah. completely true, but we don't really say it like that. I think that's super brilliant. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'll, yeah, That's I'll really cool. Later. <laughs> yeah, you should. Hey, Hayden, for the for the $100,000 deal, you know, you were talking about like what kind of like, are you buying something for a million? Or are you buying something for $200,000? Um, I generally lever five, uh, four to one. So 200, so 400. 200 grand will buy you, you know, I mean, you're looking at 80% LTV. So, um, but again, like I told you about the first deal I ever did, it was, you know, $30,000 down on a $500,000 property. So, um, just, just depends on the, on the deal itself, but generally speaking, I mean, at least 80% LTV. So you're getting agency debt on these for 80% LTV at, 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 at the closing with the in place cap rates. Oh, you uh, get, you get off market. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so, but you know, we'll go like, I mean, truest lens, um, you know, different, I mean, large regional banks, you know, will lend on, on these kind of products. So that's cool, man. That's awesome, man. That's, that's pretty much all I had. If, uh, Drew, you have anything else? Yeah. And I apologize again for having to dip out for a minute. Um, but Hayden is, um, is, you, all of your assets is strictly in storage or do you have some kind of diversity in there? Um, I mean, to me, diversity is different deals, you know? So when people talk <laughs> about diversity, I'd rather get really good at one thing and then sure. do that kind of uh, that 95, well, probably 85% of my assets are in 
uh, self storage and boat and RV storage. And then I have uh, some, some, I mean, you know, my personal residence and then um, I have one uh, small multifamily property in Georgia that uh, I need to sell, but I just haven't. So talk to us, man. <laughs> We're trying to buy a small multifamily, man. So we'll chat. We'll chat. Yeah. I'll give you guys yeah. a really bad deal. Oh, a lot of bad deals, dude. <laughs> Especially thing, in, in DeKalb County, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So, and, That's cool. uh, and, and you seem pretty young, man. You said you were nine years old in 2005. So, man, wow. How'd you get involved? Like, I was not even close to thinking on the level you're playing in when I was your age. So how? What inspired that? What's your why? I wish I had some big one, man. I just always want to be rich. Yeah, I like that. Honestly, I'm mean, just straight up about it. You know, I just yeah. always want to be able to do, you know, but, whatever. But I what are you going to do with the rich money? Like, what are you going to buy right. a boat or like what? So, like, why? whatever I want. And I mean, right now I'm just buying more real estate. So, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't really have, you know, aspirations to, to like, I don't have a, you know, a vision board with an island on it or anything like that. But uh, I don't know. I've just always been super interested in freedom, is why I say that. I mean, I'm not really after, the money. I'm just after the ability to do whatever I want to do. You know what I mean? So um, to me, like, that's just kind of always what's been associated with having money is just doing whatever you want to do. Uh, I'm not a very good rule rule follower or anything like that. So. And you um, have to be a business owner. You have no I had to be. Business. I mean, yeah. Whenever I grew up, I thought I'd be an entrepreneur, you know. And I, I think you were yeah. off, you know, taking that delivery. But um, I, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, business owner, until I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and then you know, it just kind of struck me that you know, I hey, I don't have to own a business. I could just own real estate, and that sounds even better, you know. But in a way, that does make you a business owner. You know, it is a business, right? <sighs> it's a debate, you know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a business owner if if you if you file taxes you are considered a business owner you yeah yeah i mean it depends how yeah. you you know how you own yeah. it and all that stuff but um yeah i mean i guess it's a business you know depending on your level of you know if you choose to have a property management company if you choose to do it yourself if you choose to hire people and systemize there's and, a lot of different ways to kind you of were structure. you were mentioning the different ways of kind of running a successful storage facility which one do you tend to fall into? Are you hiring like a manager at 50, 60K salary? Are you more just like, I got software, I don't need anything else? Like, how's that? How do you do it typically? Uh, I do both currently. Um, you know, like we have a, a boat and RV storage property in Florida where, you know, our competitive advantage is customer service and, uh, you know, our clients really like that. So in that situation, it makes sense. Um, but on more just the traditional uh, self-storage, you know, I, I try to automate, just have site techs and, you know, automate as much as the, the customer interaction as possible. So, And that's with software primarily? Yeah, I mean, website, software, uh, email communications, you know, uh, auto pay type deals. So, yeah. Do you have somebody Please. taking like the calls, like answering phones, doing sales, or is that you? Or That is not me. Yes, someone does it. Nice. Do you just compensate them based strictly on commission or is there like a salary? I'm, if I'm digging too deep, let me know. I'm just a business owner. <laughs> so I'm always... You're fine. You're fine. I mean, um, 
you know, like we've we've built an internal kind of call center to handle calls and stuff through our our portfolio. So, um, yeah, we hire people who work, you know, on all the different properties, you know, rather than just one particular property. But even then, we try to reduce, you know, call center volume as much as possible. So those and people just get paid that out salary. third party or is that in-house? In-house. Yeah. But you're nice. not a business owner. <laughs> Uh, I never said I wasn't a business owner. I just said it's up for debate based off of how you run it. If I wanted to hand everything over to a property management company, would I be a business owner? Yeah. Yes. I would. 100%. You're, you're for sure. You're the biggest business owner we've talked to this week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. you guys heard it here first. I'm a business owner. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know I'm a business owner because I have a software company and you know, yeah. some other stuff, but, uh, yeah. but, you know, I, I, I don't think that people who, you know, if you want to get into the self-storage industry, I don't think that you need to view it as I'm becoming a business owner or entrepreneur because it, it, it's whenever I think of a business owner, I think of, you know, all the time obligations and everything that comes along with being that business owner. And until you get to the point you're successful enough to, hire a CEO and hire a CFO and hire, you know, mid-level managers and everything like that. Like a self-storage facility doesn't require all of that. Like you can, you can still get in the self-storage industry, you know, and uh, I guess you're a quasi business owner, but I don't want people to think that it's going to be like, you're buying a franchise that, you know, whenever your person doesn't show up at, for the eight o'clock shift, you got to run down and start making pizzas. You know, like I think there's a, a very mm, distinguishable difference between. It sounds, it sounds to me like even though it's an active kind of asset class, it sounds like it's probably the most passive of all the quote active asset classes. Would that be accurate? We could, we could give that a check mark. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I just know nothing about storage. This is really fascinating for me. It's cool. Cool, man. I'm going to, I'm going to. So, your second book, man, is that talk more on the storage side or are you still talking about financial freedom using assets? Uh, so, skip the flip one, which is secrets the 1% know about real estate investing, is just all about why everybody should be investing in commercial real estate. And I highly recommend everybody read that book. Uh, the 1,050 Amazon reviews say that it's a pretty good book, which surprises me. But uh, apparently people like it and you can get it absolutely free in PDF or audiobook at HaydenCrabtree.com slash free book. So everybody can have it for free. That's part of my mission is just give away the education. My second book, Three Keys to Any Deal, talks about, okay, once you understand why commercial real estate is really, really good, let's talk about the three pieces, which are the deal, the management and the capital. Let's talk about the three pieces that you need in order to actually start growing your portfolio. And these are things that I learned, you know, over the last six years of working for free and and buying, you know, $50 million worth of property and just boiled down into really three simple categories. You can say, check, 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 let's do this, right? So that's what Skip the Flip, Three Keys to Any Deals are about. And then my third book is all, it's going to be the mini storage booklet. I haven't named it, but it's going to be like 80 pages of just like straight actionable. Here's how to analyze storage facilities. Here's what to look for in a market. Here's what to look for in a deal. Here's how you know if it's a deal or not. And you know, here's how you should make the decision on how you want to run it. So that'll be my third book, which I'm trying to launch by the end of the year. 
That's awesome, man. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you, dude, how, how, do, how would they do that? Instagram, Hayden Crabtree, H-A-Y-D-E-N, Crabtree. Pretty easy. It's probably the best way. Cool. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, dude. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to chat with you guys. Thanks for having me.